to the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, which are now entering their fourth year of broadcast. Who would have thought that when Seth died in 2014, all these years later we would be making a podcast in his memory? It's a really exciting time for Charlotte and me. We've been recording 30 podcasts, one for each day in November, as part of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Charlotte has been talking to all kinds of people involved with pancreatic cancer and over the next 30 days we will hear lots of personal stories. Stories of love, stories of commitment, stories of hope and sadly, as always with pancreatic cancer, stories of loss. Each story will help you understand the challenges of pancreatic cancer as well as the signs and symptoms and will help you to have conversations with people and ensure that they are aware of what to look out for. Join us each day for our Purple Rainbow podcast. If you miss any of the episodes, you can catch up by visiting www.purplerainbow.co.uk where all of the podcasts will be stored for you to listen to at your leisure. Follow us on your podcast channel, like and share, and join us for an interesting month with lots of stories of love and hope. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. I'm Charlotte and today is Sunday the 14th of November and that means we're at the end of week two. And at the end of every week, we're going to take a moment to reflect back on what we've heard over the last week. And in some cases, you'll hear bits of the interviews that you haven't heard, some extra bits that I couldn't quite fit into the original interview, but I really wanted you to hear. We began this week by hearing from Lindsay. She told us all about her dad, Maka, and last night was Maka's replacement wake memorial fundraiser. It was a bit of an event anyway. They called it Macca's St. Pancreas Day. And yes, that is a play on St. Patrick's Day, because I'm not entirely sure if you've gathered they were an Irish family. Lindsay shared with us what it was like going through COVID with her dad being so poorly. They went to Shield the week before lockdown, basically, because as soon as the venue started shutting, they were like, right, we're going we're gonna to Shield. And they were very like they should have been very regimented um no one came well because you were terminal you, you could break the rules technically the, the rules didn't apply but m- mum and dad were very even my mum didn't leave the house my mum shielded and she didn't have to but it, the rules was the only person they would allow in the house was me because I don't live with them um but that was very much for not only for my mental health but for theirs because they were like we can't not see not we can't not see you it'll it'll do our heads in basically and I wasn't willing to to move back in because they weren't going anywhere and I I like my daily walk type thing that really helped me during lockdown um and I needed to go out and about to go to the shops and that for them but it was very much when during the pandemic up until support, support bubbles came in I would go I would literally walk in the house wash my hands, sit down in a chair that was completely opposite end of the room to them at least five or six metres, didn't touch anything, didn't move from that chair, didn't use the facilities and literally left. So the fact that I couldn't hug him for four months or my mum uh, until the support bubbles came in was hard. And then any family support we have, um, 
one of my aunties was really good, but a lot of the family support we couldn't use because they weren't allowed to come to the house until we allowed people in the garden type thing. And even when they were, they were allowed in the garden, it was two metres away. And he wasn't allowed to go to any of his treatments with my mum. When he the, he had three hospital stays, and we weren't they only we were only allowed to go in for one of them, and that's basically because they're told we were told it wasn't going to be long. Very difficult. Another guest who shared memories of her dad this week was Nicoletta. She joined me from Cyprus to be on the podcast, and she's been doing an amazing job of raising awareness there. Lots of our conversation will stay with me because our dads sounded so, so similar. But I really, really wanted to replay this section of the interview because I think sometimes we can feel downhearted if when we set out on a fundraising mission, we set out to do a fundraising event, we can sometimes feel a little bit downhearted if we don't raise the hundreds and thousands of pounds. So I really want you to listen to this bit again. My first fundraising was right before COVID and I, we ran in, in memory of, of my friend's dad and my dad. Um, and that was, that was fun, actually. We sort of, we got a group from school going and we, we sort of poked and prodded a little bit because fundraising is always a bit, you have to be a bit shameless, basically, and say, look, I'm running for this. Would you care to sponsor me and be willing to sort of take a no for an answer um, or, or a lack of answers sometimes. Um, so I did that and then COVID hit and we were sort of, you know, um, up in the air. What I did try to continue doing actually is organize some light-ups. So I've been really lucky here because, um, first of all, we're a small country, obviously. So I managed to get um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is where my dad worked, obviously they've really been phenomenal so they've got this beautiful old i think i think it's a colonial style building but i'm not sure it, it's it's gorgeous um and they've agreed to sort of light it up purple in memory of my dad because he was a colleague yeah so that's that's i'm very very grateful for that um and i've also had the gallery for contemporary art and they're lit up for all of november which is great. And I try and share it on social media. I mean, I'm not an influencer by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, if the message gets through to some people, um, that's better than nothing. And if nothing else, they look pretty on the, <laughs> on the day of uh, World Pancreatic Cancer Day. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's about raising that awareness and giving someone that fighting chance that, that you mentioned that you... That, you and your dad missed out on isn't it exactly exactly and what what i'm really touched actually i did a, i did a, i did a sponsored walk this year the big step forward um because it was virtual and it was easier for us to do i was actually really touched by the outpouring of support both both emotional and and financial actually like you know people i never ever expected to you know, I'd get this donation showing up on my page and I, you know, I, I try and thank each donor individually because I really mean this, Charlotte, when I say that even one euro or one pound can really help. Um, and, you know, people's messages were just so heartwarming. They're like, that's fantastic. You know, well done. We can't wait to see pictures. Let us know next time so that we can walk with you. It was really good. So we managed to raise, um, I think what was about, 800 pounds. I mean, I know in the grand scheme of things, it's not like, wow. But for a little Cypriot, you know, <laughs> it was really... I think it's really good. Every little grain of sand on a beach plays a part. If, there were, if they all disappeared, 
there'd be no beach, right? It's the same with fundraising. Every pound, pay, every penny plays a part in it. That's exactly, exactly how I felt. Every little penny helps. And obviously, even if people, you know, if people for whatever reason can't donate, which is very, very understandable because, my goodness me, we have not had an easy time of it these past few years. You know, that you know the fact that they share it on social media or the fact that they spread the word in their workplaces, um, even that is, or they try and sort of find contacts to help with the light-ups. I mean, there are so many ways to help with um, raising awareness and money's a very, very small part of it. And you can't really put a price on raising awareness either, can you? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, I, I, you know, the other thing I would like to, to see done is, is basically people, because the symptoms obviously don't really appear until it's a bit too late, but sort of try screening, a blood screening test if people are high risk and so on. I mean, what is a little, you know, prick, basically? Um, so I think that's what we're really trying to do just to give people a better chance at surviving it. I'm ever so grateful for the time I spent with GP and Marie too. And I found it fascinating to hear what has, well, not changed in the last 50 years when it comes to pancreatic cancer. Hearing her experiences with her aunt all that time ago and more recently with a family friend was shocking. So I asked her what she would like to see happen in 50 years' time from now. Well, I suppose just that I hope we're not... Well, I probably won't be sitting here another 50 years, but I hope we're not sitting here in another 50 years and things haven't changed. Let's just hope that this this new blood test that's coming out will make a difference. Because we don't... I think the thing is, we, we know that the mortality rate for pancreatic cancer is poor we know the out the outcome is poor even with treatment but what we don't know is what the difference is if we actually get the cancer early and if we look at the outcomes for things like breast cancer and we look at the mortality rates for breast cancer you know that's come way down and that's due to early diagnosis that's due to mammograms it's due to awareness um, you know it's due to women having a lower threshold for going along and seeing their doctor with breast lumps. And then if you think of cervical cancer, I can remember seeing people dying of cervical cancer when I was a junior doctor. It's extremely rare now. Um, you know, yes, obviously we had Jade Goody. She was in the news because, you know, I don't think she'd got her smears. But if you get your smears, if you do your screening, etc., there's a really good chance that even if something's picked up, it'll be picked up early. You'll be treated. You'll still be alive. And that's the thing. We don't know about pancreatic cancer. We need to pick it up early. That would be my message. And sticking with the medical professionals, I also got to talk to Hemet Kocher. He's a professor of liver and pancreas surgery at Bart's Cancer Institute and Queen Mary University of London and consultant pancreatic and liver surgeon at Bart's Health NHS Trust. And I was really interested to hear from him what it was like to be a patient on a clinical trial. Not that he's been a patient on a clinical trial, but he's part of clinical trials because I think we hear a lot about clinical trials and it just, it's the unknown, isn't it? And Hemant explained fully what it's like. I've not been on clinical trial, but I've, I keep asking the patients who are on clinical trials. Um, and they say that the care they receive is much better on clinical trials because they are watched like a hawk. Um, they are called every 
week, if not every day, to make sure they are okay. They, if they have any problems, they are dealt with easily. So clinical trials, being on clinical trials actually gives you enhanced care when it's not possible. Secondly, the, the thing with clinical trials is you will get the standard of care treatment for sure. But in addition, you may get a treatment which may just be the breakthrough treatment ahead of anybody else. So uh, clinical trials have a lot of advantages in that care, enhanced patient care and ab ability to get cutting edge treatment. The disadvantage, of course, is we don't know whether it will work for sure or not. And there are some clinical trials out there, despite our best efforts to to make sure that the patient is safe, uh, they can be harmful, in which case we stop the trial early so that other patients are not. So they are very intensely monitored. So my experience of clinical trial as a clinician was, wow, this is fantastic care. And, and the patients have given me similar feedback. I also spoke to filmmaker Dan Kennedy this week. He, along with the team at ITV Tonight, made a documentary about his dad and pancreatic cancer. Dan told me what it was like filming his dad and whether he would do it again. And I totally get it because obviously my life has been about journalism and reporting on the radio. And I wonder, actually, I don't wonder, I think I would possibly do a very similar thing to what Dan did, but with audio instead. And Dan and I also talked about the frustration of being able to get your message to the right people. They can write to their MPs. They can say that they saw that programme. Um, and there are certain, you know, why, why aren't some of those drugs that are available in the US, so they're not drugs, are those um, blood tests available to people now? Um, well, I think the most concerning thing for me and the thing that, um, uh, you know, if I got an interview on a national, in a national newspaper uh, or on a national on TV, if I got somewhere, I would say that the, the awful thing is, is that we know that 1% of people with type 2 diabetes has pancreatic cancer. And um, that amounts to 4,000 people a year in the UK. And these are about figures, um, but that's quite conservative. 4,000 people right now are walking around with a ticking time bomb that is undetectable at the moment that is going to kill 75% of them um, very quickly. My chance would be to say, if we know that 1% of people in the UK with type 2 diabetes has pancreatic cancer, then when someone is newly diagnosed, because it only refers to people who are newly diagnosed, if a GP knows that, and not all of them do, then why, why can't some of the tests that are being developed um, be given to them as a matter of course. Tests, and it doesn't matter which test it is. It might be the Immunovia test, which they claim is, is got not, can identify stages one and two, uh, pancreatic cancer in uh, uh, patients with type 2 diabetes. So that would flag them up. I think that the test, which is quite early, but urine test coming out of um, BART's, uh, could be also be given to them, and so could... Um, um, and there are some other tests, I can't quite remember, there are other tests that are being developed by another university um, that are also claiming. Uh, to me, we need to start doing something now, not waiting for 
um, four or five years time for these things to be tested and retested and cohort groups. But all that science, which is incredibly important, um, I think that should run con concurrently with the collection of bloods from people with type 2 diabetes. Uh, newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes because those bloods could be available for scientists going forward plus the patient who's allowing their bloods to be tested um, it may if they get the results it may save their life or allow them to be further invest further investigations to happen and then they can be ruled out or maybe they could have their life saved and i think lots of people would be happy to do that as well. Because if you look at last year when there was the big call out for people to help with the COVID vaccinations, hundreds of thousands of people signed up to be part of those trials, didn't they? And I think people are keen to help. And obviously with the whole, you might save your life bit added onto it, it's, it's quite... Exactly. Um, I mean, uh... I mentioned this before, and it didn't quite make it into the, one of the bits we wrote in the script, it didn't quite make it into the film. That if there was a, imagine, just imagine if there was a figure like Chris Whitty, someone, um, doesn't have to be a man, but somebody um, super sharp, intelligent, and really understands science and understands the imperative that we could save thousands and thousands of lives here every year. What could we actually do? And what we could do if there was a task force set up, and, and it's, it's not just me who's, you know, other charities are, are saying that there needs to be a task force, a, a pancreatic cancer czar. Um, and he, this was even alluded to into the all-party parliamentary group on pancreatic cancer, whose their report, they, I think it was published in 2017, um, was an incredible report, really good, really thorough, uh, not perfect. But then I'll let the scientists argue about what was and wasn't perfect. But yeah, they, we need to act quickly. It was called The Need for Speed, that report. And, um, and and I don't think people in government realise that there is a need, realise the need for speed and how we could save lives. We would need money to set up that task force. And if we had this Chris Whitty, this czar type person who could go in there and say, right, we've got these tests. We're going to start testing everyone, everybody newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes a couple of months after they've been diagnosed. I mean, that is a period that would have to be decided by scientists much cleverer than I. And then we can see if all these three tests work and then we can start to save lives now. Now, not in five, six, seven, eight years time, which is the, um, which is the normal time scale for these, these blood tests to actually reach the market. Uh, and then they could explore this Immunovia test, uh, the Pancandy array, uh, which, is, which is licensed in the US for $1,000. Now, this getting the message to the right people is a hard one. And it's something Leslie and I are desperately trying to do with this podcast, trying to get the message to as many people as possible and as many new ears as possible too. Of course, we would love to hear from you if you've got any ideas about how we can get the message out there. And one of the ways you can do that is, of course, by sharing this podcast with everybody you know. And I'm going to finish this roundup episode with a trio of women, Carol, Jules and Alison. They formed one of the strongest friendships I have seen in my life. They all met on the Pancreatic Cancer UK forum because the husbands had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at roughly the same time. Now, seven years on, they are still meeting up, whether that's virtually, thanks to the pandemic, or in person. And of course, they are being there for each other too. 
we've told each other things that we haven't told another living soul. We've told each other things that we wouldn't tell. Well, I wouldn't tell my mother or my best friend. Um, and I think it's because when you've been through what we've been through, you're stripped of all those social norms and the niceties. You're raw. Um, and we've seen each other in a raw state. So um, nothing will faze us. Nothing shocks us. You know, it's 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 just a one of those wonderful friendships that will be rock solid forever. And and you know, in the years that I've gone by, it's been wonderful also to see how people how we've all changed and how our lives have developed. You know, there was as Alison said, there's seven of us to begin with, and I think we've had um, two weddings, two have found love again and and, and remarried, which is wonderful. We've had five grandchildren, would that be right? If I got it wrong, five, maybe That'd five or six. That, yeah. yeah, have been born over that time. Mm-hmm. Alison's walked walked on five and jumped yes. out of the I do stupid things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our children, you know, our children, have, I mean, mine are off to university and Alison's are off doing amazing things in the um, Marines and... You know, we've watched our children go through school, leave school and move on to the next stage. Um, so it's quite, Jules is relocated from one part of the country to another. I think quite a lot, we've looked back as well, haven't we? And thought, and we've had, we've said when we've been together, blimey, look how far we've come. Because, you know, in the early, in the early days, I can honestly say, if somebody said to me, how did you get, you know, how did you get through it? Because in those early days, I, you just think, I don't know how I'm going to get to tomorrow. And I literally, within my head, just think, just get to lunchtime. Just do lunchtime and then we'll do the afternoon. And, then, and that was what my days were like. So I had no, could not make any, my brain would not think long term. So I couldn't think about what am I going to do next year because I could just about get through the day. If somebody said, you know, some people say, oh, you know, time, it gets easier with time and all that stuff, all the kind of stuff that you hear. But you can't imagine that you're ever going to get to that point when you are living with it and you're actually okay. But now we look back and go, blimey, it really was. We couldn't get through a day without doubting how you were going to do it. So we do remind ourselves of just how far we've come sometimes. You know, the worst possible um, circumstances brought us together. The, the darkest days of our life. But we stay together now because I think we've all got a kind of a shared respect for one another and also a commitment to live our best lives for the sake of our men who didn't get that chance. Um, that's what I feel that really strongly. Clive would be so annoyed with me if I didn't make the best of what I had because he was never given that chance. Yeah, and I'd echo that and I kind of, I felt like that right since Chris died that it was just like he got so much taken away from him then what you know because I don't mean this with any disrespect but some people somebody once said this to me I think it was a bereavement counselor we were talking and she just said you see some people almost make make being a widow their their focus it's all about the being a widow and you know grief and I was very much the opposite, that it was all taken away from him. So how, what right have I got to waste what, what he's lost? So I kind of, that is my whole, I don't stress and worry about stuff like I used to because I think that all comes from, you know, getting things into perspective and what really matters and that whole, it is a cliche, but it is the life's too short. So you just grab it with both hands and think, I'm just going to do it because we're not going to get another go at this. But if, you know, for people who are, 
kind of because there's so many people that are starting out where we were eight years ago if I could say anything to them it's to get it's to just reach out for any of that support because at the time it might not change the ultimate outcome but they will get so much from it on the way and you know and if they're using the forum and things because like I stopped going on there because there was that bit about, oh, my God, it's just so depressing because these people have still got hope and we all know what's going to happen. But then that doesn't mean that they shouldn't use the forum because they will get – there will be other groups of people just like us, I'm sure, that would come out of it. So it's just to use any any available support at every single opportunity. Grab it with with both hands because it doesn't yeah, make a difference. It's just like grieve, then live your best life to another person you've lost. Thank you to every single person who took part in the podcast this week. And, of course, thank you to you for listening as well. Leslie and I would love to hear your thoughts. Just get in touch with us at purplerainbow.co.uk. Of course, if you've missed any of this week's episodes, you can catch up. You just need to find it on your podcast app of choice. And don't forget to also follow the podcast in your podcast app so you don't miss any of the others from our daily podcast special for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And of course, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode for you.